Did you know, uh, April 30th, 234 years ago, one of the most significant events in human history was taking place at Federal Hall in New York City. The inauguration of the first president of the United States of America, George Washington. April 30th was a Thursday in 1789. And after a lot of conversation of where the first president should be inaugurated, they chose Federal Hall. Uh, and he was inaugurated, put his hand on the Bible, solemnly swore to defend the Constitution. And when he was finished, he kissed the Bible. He kissed the Word of God. Then he went over and gave the first inaugural address in human history of a president of the United States. And you go back and read it. That inaugural address is peppered with his perception of how God was working in the history of America. And his favorite phrase for that was the invisible hand of providence. It's all throughout his speeches and writings and beginning on that day, the invisible hand of providence. And in fact, in that speech, he made a statement, uh, he made the statement and said clearly, there is no way to explain the events that led to the founding of the United States but the hand of Almighty God, the hand of providence. My, how things have changed in government. This past March, the security officers, officers that are in charge of the lounge that is designated for the United States House of Representatives noticed something strange had happened. For decades, there have been two Bibles in the lounge of the U.S. House. And those Bibles have been, have been there on tables, openly displayed for any House member, any government member who wanted to come in to read the Word of God, but also as a representation that the Bible is central to our government. And they noticed that suddenly those two Bibles had vanished. Now, it's not possible for anyone to walk in off the street unescorted and walk into the house chamber or to the lounge of the House of Representatives. It's too secure. No one could have just walked in there and said, hey, I'd like to have those Bibles or I'd like to get rid of those Bibles and walked out with them. So the security went back and they looked at the surveillance tapes. And what they found was Stephanie Stahl Hamilton a representative, Democrat from Arizona, was in the lounge one day by herself and very intentionally picked up both of the Bibles and hid them. Not just once, but twice. And one of them she hid in the refrigerator. Now, it was very obvious she had done it. And when word got out that she had hidden the Bibles that had for decades been an established part of the lounge of the House of Representatives, word got out, the media asked her why she did that. They didn't ask her if she did it because it was clear she'd done it. The question was why she did it. And to this day, she has refused to answer the question. Why she would hide the Word of God from other members of the United States government because that's who she's hiding it from. And ironically, she claims to be a Presbyterian minister. My, how things have changed. The United States has been founded, of course, in principles that are embedded in the Word of God in Scripture. As most of our founders were Christians, and those that were not, believed the principles of Scripture related to creation and our Creator. So those, those principles are embedded in our system of government and in the founding and establishing of our government. But here we are today where not only are they hidden and removed, Christians 
we ourselves are being pressured to hide our faith away. And as a result of that, a lot of times we, we feel that pressure, and whether it's on the job or it's in our families or in our neighborhoods, we feel that pressure, that implicit pressure to be quiet. And if you're not quiet, you'll be punished for your faith. And that's where, where we are now, where we, where we have arrived to and, and where we're going. But the Bible is always relevant to every age, including that of Christians. So the letter of 1 Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, was written to Christians who were undergoing persecution in AD 64. In the first century, the first believers driven out of Rome under Nero into Asia Minor, and he wrote this letter to those who, as he put it, were dispersed throughout the empire, but particularly Asia Minor, to help them in this time of suffering and persecution. In the last few weeks, we have dug into the opening paragraphs and sentences of Peter's letter to these suffering and persecuted Christians. And in that, he has laid the theological foundation, deep, rich theology of our living hope in Christ. He's reminded us that this is not our home. In fact, we are far from home. And whatever we're going through, Christ is with us here. But we know that we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of glory. And we have to see it in that perspective. So he reminds us of that, just as he did the, the believers in the first century. He reminds us that our salvation in Christ, our eternal life, is wedded to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why he calls it, as we saw last week, a living hope. Our hope is alive, living hope in Christ. From there, he's going to move forward in the letter to make very practical applications. In the weeks ahead, we will see simply this, beginning today, how that living hope applies. What does it mean to live now in light of the fact we have a living hope in Christ, and how does that apply to your life? Uh, see, it, we might go through the same situations as those who are not believers on planet Earth. We suffer and they suffer, for example. But it's how we respond that should show we understand our living hope in Christ. The Christian life is not about what happens to you. It's about how you respond to what happens to you. And how you and I respond, how you and I live, should be a clear indication of our walk with Christ, our faith in Christ, our life in Christ. It should be different than how we lived before Christ. We have a living hope in Christ. So what we're going to see Peter address next as he moves forward in these practical applications is how your living hope should shape your suffering. How your living hope should shape your suffering. Your belief, your understanding, the deep embedded truth in your life that you have a, a living hope in Jesus Christ should shape all of your decisions and, and specifically here, Peter says, your suffering, your trials your heartaches, your pain. How does your living hope in Christ shape your suffering and how you live through that suffering? Now pick up with me where we left off last week in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start reading at verse 6, right where we ended last week. Peter says this, you rejoice in this. Now let me pause right there. The in this refers back to everything we just read, in particular, your living hope in Christ, and that, as he said in verse 5, you have a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. So, in this, this living hope, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, 
is refined by fire. It may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. How does your living hope in Christ shape the way you suffer and the way you handle suffering? How does it, how does it shape the way you perceive your life and, and the suffering that you go through? Now, Peter reminds us of a few things related to suffering right away in, in verse 6 because he knows we all suffer. Now, he's writing to Christians that are suffering specifically persecution. And as we know, some of us actually suffer persecution right now, maybe in job, maybe in our, maybe in our job, in our family, in our neighborhood, in our marriage, uh, in a variety of ways. You may suffer ridicule, pressure, heartache, a variety of ways, suffer persecution. But the truth is, what we're going to talk about applies to all of our suffering. All of our suffering. And there's a few things Peter says about this, whatever kind or type of suffering you have or you're going through. Uh, the first thing you notice, he says, it's for a short time. Uh, now, by this, he doesn't mean that no one ever has long-term suffering in life, that, that there's no affliction or burden that you have to bear all of your life. What he means is this. In the biblical perspective and a Christian way of looking at life, everything in this life is just for a short time. You know, when you think of it in the light of eternity, everything in this life is for a short time. And we have to keep that in mind, that whatever we suffer, whatever trial we're going through, yes indeed in this life it might have a cap on it, it might be short term, there might be healing or, or help or hope along the way, but however you perceive it, what you're living through in this life, in the grand scheme of eternity, is for a short time time. And then he says, for a short time, it might be necessary. Now that's a little unpleasant to think about, isn't it? That sometimes our suffering could actually be necessary. But he's making a point here about the circumstances they were in, and the phrase in, in its entirety means necessary for these present circumstances. So for those who are suffering persecution, he's telling them, for a short time, your suffering is necessary for these present circumstances. Well, what present circumstances? Well, that's where he says the, the, the refining of your character. Your imperishable character in Christ. Even gold, he says, is perishable. And we polish that. We refine that. But your hope in Christ, your living hope, your salvation, your character in Christ is eternal. And sometimes God needs to refine that just a bit. Sharpen that up. Because there are some areas of our character that never get refined, proven, or strengthened unless we go through difficult circumstances. So he says, for a time, for a season, this might be necessary, whatever you're going through right now, God knows the reason for it. Let God apply his grace, his compassion, his help to you right now in these circumstances. And for that, he says, we go through, did you get this, 
various trials, grief in various trials. Grief means distress in various trials. Peter's very realistic. The phrase various trials means multifaceted difficulties or sufferings, all kinds. Everything he's saying applies to all kinds of, str- of struggle, of circumstances, and suffering, or heartaches. See, we all go through those things. It's the degree and the type that might be different. You might be one of those folks that you feel like sometimes, God, I've got the lion's share of suffering. Why me? Why am I going through this? And you, and you look across the aisle and you see someone whose Christian life just seems to be gleaming and going swimmingly and why am I going through this and they're not going through anything? Well, here's the thing. We all live on planet Earth. Planet Earth is a fallen place. Trial, difficulty, and suffering will come to all of us. Don't look at outside appearances and wonder about them. You know, Jesus once told the Apostle Peter himself that after the resurrection. He looked back and he wondered, well, if I'm going to suffer, what about John? And Jesus' answer was, don't look at him. I'll plan his life and I'll plan yours. How about that? How about we let God be God? Sound like a good idea? Because then you can focus on what God is doing in your various kinds of struggles and trials. And he's at work. He's at work. And he wants to remember you have a living hope in Christ. Your life in Christ, believer in Christ, your life is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's eternal in Christ. You have a living hope. In Christ. So how should that living hope in Christ shape your suffering? What do you need to remember? What do you need to think about? How does living hope shape your suffering? Look at this with me. First of all, living hope anticipates praise. Peter says, your living hope, the fact that your hope is alive, anticipates praise. It, it looks ahead to praise. He says, it may result in praise, and that's your proven character and your living hope, result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what he's talking about is that in your life, and as you are suffering and trusting Christ more and more, when you put the focus on Christ, that brings praise to him. Just the very fact that you are trusting him. He's not saying you should praise God or thank God for the suffering, but what he's saying is in the suffering, the person who knows they have a living hope in Christ brings praise to God by trusting God in that struggle and in that suffering. So right now, as you trust God, you are honoring him, you're bringing praise to him. But then he looks beyond that to the consummation of the age. Remember, we've learned this. In 1 Peter, your salvation in Christ, your faith in Christ, that uh, trust him for salvation, uh, the Bible teaches, and Peter especially anchors in this, that you are saved when you trust Christ, you are being saved because it's a process, and you will be saved when God consummates your salvation. He finishes everything at the end of the age with your resurrection. So Peter has that in mind when he says that you will glorify God at the, revel- at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, when you, at the end of the age, when all proclaim that Christ is Lord, the fact that you trusted him, 
will bring praise to him. He will be glorified because he's the one bringing you through that suffering. He will be glorified because it's his living hope in you that you're anchored to and, you, and he brought you through that suffering. So when you live through suffering, when you're struggling right now, did you know you can anticipate praising Jesus with your life and you can anticipate others praising Jesus because of your life? Praise becomes a condition of your life, an actual uh, environment, if you want to put it that way, that you live in because as you trust Christ, you are praising Him with your life. And you know that one day, someday, your trust in Him will bring glory to Him in front of everyone. In front of everyone. So your living hope anticipates praise. Secondly, your living hope cultivates faith. It cultivates faith. Peter says, though you have not seen him, and remember he's writing to first century Christians, and to put a finer point on it, he's writing to Christians about probably 30, 31 years after the resurrection of Christ. So keep that in mind. Though you have not seen him, they had not seen the resurrected Christ, but Peter had. And maybe the question is, well, Peter, does he love us Excuse me, does he love you more than he loves us? You got to see the resurrected Christ. Is our faith weaker than yours in times of suffering? You, you've seen the resurrected Christ and, and we haven't. So what does that mean? Though you have not seen him, you do. You love him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen, Peter says, you love Jesus just as much as I do. You're blessed by Jesus just as much as I am. Because you believe in him. You don't see him, but you believe in him. Now, loving Jesus and believing Jesus in this context are are tied together. Do you remember how Jesus himself said, we express our love for him? Remember this? If you love me, you will do what I say. That's pretty simple. If you love me, you will do what I say. If you love God, if you love Jesus, you'll, you'll get to know the word of God and you'll apply that to your life. You'll do what Jesus says. That your life becomes your love note to Jesus. You're writing that on your life as you trust him, as you depend on him, as you believe in him and therefore obey him. So Peter says to the Christians then and to us today who are going through times of suffering, you are loving on him by trusting him and doing what he says for you to do. In that time, you're being faithful to him. And the thing is, that that cultivates more faith. It doesn't weaken your faith. It cultivates, cultivates more faith, inexpressible joy, more faith. As you see him work in your life, as you see him show up, as you see his promises fulfilled, As he shows up and walks with you through your present time of suffering, it brings joy to you, and you trust him even more. And all of this, Peter says, all of this, the goal of this, verse 9, is you receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The goal of your faith, your trust in Christ, is that ultimate finish, that redemption, the salvation, 
you are saved, you're being saved, you will be saved. That's the ultimate goal of your faith and your trust in Christ. And, and you're seeing him shape you and change you all the time, right? You're seeing him work in your life and work in your circumstances. So you know that he is working out that plan toward that goal. Ultimately, the finished product is you. The goal of your faith is the salvation of your souls. Notice what it's not. He didn't say the goal of your faith is an easy life with no suffering. The goal of your faith is to always be comfortable in this life as a Christian. The goal of your faith is that God will give you anything you want all the time. No. The goal of your faith is to get finished. To cross that line. Trusting Christ all along the way. Seeing him work. Experiencing the joy, even in your suffering, the joy of knowing you are faithful to Christ. Now that phrase, the salvation of your souls, if you're looking at your hard copy of your Bible, and, and you don't mind underlining, this is a good thing to highlight or underline, because the term translated souls refers to the complete person. The complete person. It's a very specific word, and it refers to all of you. Body, soul, and spirit. See, God's objective, the goal of your faith, is your finished product, your resurrection. Your new life in Christ that started here, your living hope that starts here, your eternity that starts here, is finished one day with Him. The Bible teaches that you and I are created complete beings, whole beings. And God intends to redeem us whole beings. Body, soul, and spirit. We tend to think, for example, we tend to think of heaven and, and disembodied people as the end of it all. That's not the end of it all. Did you know the folks in heaven are, are waiting for the same thing we're waiting for, the resurrection? Now, they're free of the suffering of this life, but God's not finished. And they know it even better than we do. As they anticipate and wait the resurrection, the new body for that new life in Christ. How important is this to understand right now? From the very beginning, God created us whole persons, male and female. And the biblical thinking about your body, listen, your body is an outward expression of your soul. That's what it is. If you see me walking down the street, you go, that looks like Pastor Bob. Because I look like Pastor Bob. The soul in this body is unique to me, so my body is unique to me as well. And it's designed as such. And you might say, tomorrow, I identify as Pastor Bob. <laughs> You're not. And when God designed me a man, he made sure my biological outward expression matched my soul as a man. They go together. They're inseparable. That's the created order. Only human beings could come up with the notion that they don't match. But in biblical theology, grounded in the first three chapters of the Bible, and again in Genesis chapter 5, you are created a whole person. You're being recreated, a whole person, saved, a whole person, 
in Christ. Isn't that good news? Aren't you glad that God's in charge of that and not us? Your living hope cultivates your faith because the goal of your salvation, the goal of it all, your faith, is the salvation of your souls. Your complete person in Christ for the ages. Then last, Peter says, your living hope. If you focus on that living hope, here's what it does for you. It helps you keep perspective. It helps you remember who you really are in all of this. The last three verses we read are remarkable in and of themselves. Because Peter talks about the prophets and their perspective on Jesus and the gospel. And then in one dynamic sentence, he brings out what the angels are thinking. Now, what do angels and the prophets have in common? They're messengers. The ancient prophets of old were messengers, proclaimers, foretellers of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. And Peter says when they preached about Jesus, they did not know that the person they were preaching about would be fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. They knew they were preaching about the Messiah. They knew they were preaching about the Savior. They knew that. And then notice what Peter says. They were so interested in it, they investigated it. They did some studying. And in that study, the Spirit of Jesus, another name for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, but when he witnesses to Jesus, calling him the Spirit of Jesus, revealed to them, listen, they were not serving themselves. They were serving you. They were preaching about your Jesus, your gospel, your grace. Now, they too were saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, but they didn't know that's who he was at the time they were preaching it. But they were looking ahead. And deep in their hearts, they wanted to know who it is they were preaching about. And they didn't yet know his name. They didn't know who exactly he would be. But they knew what he would do in Isaiah. They knew what he would do in Hosea. They knew what he would be like. They knew his character. They knew what he was about. And they looked ahead. They even, even prophesied him coming out of Nazareth. And they realized they were preaching for us. The gospel of grace that we would experience firsthand. Angels, too, are messengers, but angels are quite different because they're not people. A whole different being is an angel. And that one phrase from Peter, very vivid, very graphic, very vivid phrase, that they long to look into, into the things of God and the gospel and what, what, what God's doing. You know what the phrase pictures? It pictures angels stooping down and looking with gazing over the banisters of heaven at what's happening in your life. And, and what's happening in the gospel of Jesus Christ because angels do not participate in the salvation of humanity. They can't get saved. The ones who rebelled against God, they can't get saved. They're not saved. They won't get saved. And the angels who did not rebel do not need to get saved. They're created beings and are just like they've always been. So they're fascinated with what it is that God's done for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They study it just like the prophets. They, they lean over the banister of heaven and they look down on what God's doing. And the Bible says, Jesus himself would say, every time a person is saved on planet earth, there is a celebration among the angels in heaven. Well, how do they know about it? Because they're looking. They're watching. 
They're fascinated. They're fascinated with this thing that God did for us, this, this great gospel of God that was prophesied generations ago. The, the ancients of old and the angels in heaven both studied what God has done for you. They studied your living hope, fascinated, glorifying God because he, what he has done for you. Why does Peter bring that up suddenly? Because your living hope helps you keep perspective. It anchors you in the grand witness of God's work in history. It reminds you that this, folks, this right here, this right here is far bigger than we ever could have imagined it. Far greater than you and I give it credit for. Just as the angels look down in heaven and they, and they celebrate your salvation, they must be mystified at how much we take it for granted. They want to shout out, I'm sure, using my imagination, but shout out, people, don't you get it? You're the church. You are the gospel of Jesus Christ on earth. Why are you sitting around? Why are you just showing up once a week? Why don't you get it? It's been about Jesus doing this through you for the whole world. And you only got so much time to get it done. You only got so much time. Remember, it's a short time, Peter said. A short time. Brian Chappell is an author and pastor, great writer. And he tells a real short little story about his wife when they were younger. Now his wife is a very accomplished pianist, a classical pianist, well known in her own field. And back in the day when their kids were young, he said her wife had some friends over and they had their toddlers over and, and uh, Mrs. Chappell was, was changing the diaper on one of her little toddlers and a friend was standing there talking to her while she was doing it. And, and Mrs. Chappell maybe felt a little bit sorry for herself that day, I don't know, but she commented as she's cleaning up the diaper and putting a new one on, she commented to her friends, these hands used to play Mozart and now they change diapers. And her friend, without missing a beat, said, maybe those hands are changing the diaper of the next Mozart. Perspective. You go about your business, I go about my business on planet Earth, and sometimes I just look at it as my business. I forget it's God's business. How about you? Couldn't we stand a little bit of reminding this is not about us? It's about Jesus. And whatever we're going through at the time, whatever suffering, heartache, irritations, or trials beset us, it's still about Jesus. And our living hope is in Christ. That's what makes the difference. So believers, ask yourself this here or at home. Ask yourself this. I'm going, maybe you're going through some stuff. Maybe it's a difficult time. What difference does it make that you're a follower of Christ? Have you been responding and behaving the same way your unbelieving friends, neighbors, and family members respond, believe, and behave? What difference does it make? How is it shaping the way you suffer that you have a living hope in Christ? How is it shaping the way you make decisions? How is it shaping the, your relationship in your marriage and your family, how you raise your kids? How is it shaping the way you spend your money? What difference does it make that you're a follower of Christ? Because you only got a short time to answer that question. 
And Jesus says a short time, and Peter echoes it a short time, to do the great work of the gospel on earth. I think we ought to step up and do that, don't you? In the time we have left, what, what difference would it make for us as a church if we realized all through history the prophets anticipated us, the angels celebrate the church of God on earth? What difference would it make if we got out there and we were really the church of God in Jesus Christ? And maybe you're in this room or you're at home and you have never repented of your sin and trusted Christ as your Savior. Did, did you know that he factored you in to his plan. He knows who you are. He loves you. Jesus died on the cross for you. And the angels are waiting to celebrate you coming home and following Christ. So in a moment, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for believers first. I'm going to pray for us that, that we will have that perspective. And in our suffering, we'll remember. We'll, we'll, we'll strengthen our faith and we'll remember that living hope that we have in Christ. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to pray for those of us in-house or at home. You've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. I'm going to pray a simple prayer in a moment and invite you to pray that with me to start that journey of faith, to put your faith and trust in Christ. Finally, put your faith in Him to save you, forgive you, change you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pause in this moment first so grateful, God, for the gospel. Grateful for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Grateful, God, for our place in history and who we are in Christ. Father, forgive us. Oh, God, forgive us as followers of Christ that we have been negligent, that we have been forgetful, that we have been lazy about who we are in Christ. Forgive us, God, for forgetting the great work of God that we are about the business of the gospel. And Father, I pray for each believer that that we would be reignited in a passion for Christ and for the gospel. Father, I pray for us also in our suffering and our struggles, our trials. God, they're very real to us. Nothing you you say belittles or diminishes that, God. You know how real it is. So, Father, meet us right where we are. Uh, Lift that burden, that care, that trial, that struggle. And if this is a a long-term struggle we've been going through, God, walk with us. Remind us you're present with us. In the valley, on the mountaintop, God, you're always with us. Never leave us or forsake us. Remind us of that, God, and may we know your presence in a powerful and real way right now. And God, in the same way, by faith, we give to you that struggle and that heartache. We give to you those long-held prayers, that, that suffering and that doubt, God. We give that to you. And I ask for all of us, God, you would realign our hope in Christ. You would, once again, help us to focus our faith on our living hope and on Jesus Christ. God, I pray for that one here in-house or maybe one at home that would say today, yes, to Jesus Christ, yes. That would say in faith, you died on the cross for me and you're alive today. That would say in faith, please forgive me of my sins. That would trust Christ today. So, Father, that person, I pray you would ignite their heart to pray this prayer of faith. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. It's true. I know that I'm not good enough. And I know I can't save myself. I've been trying. But I can't save myself. So, Jesus, I repent of my sin. I turn my back on that sin. I ask your forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross for me. 
and that you're alive today and I put all my faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. From this point forward, Jesus, I will follow Christ. I will believe in Jesus, trust in Christ and obey Christ from this day forward. Thank you, God, for our living hope. Thank you, God, for our home in heaven. And thank you, God, for being with us now in all that we go through. May we honor Christ, and it's in his precious name we pray.